Well, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. But why? Does it even matter? I love Easter because Easter is a day when, if you're just visiting, this is a great Sunday because everyone is uh, engaged, they're loud, they're singing, the responses are robust, and it's exciting. And maybe you got swept up in it. I'm the kind of person that gets, likes to get swept up in things. Like, even since I was a little boy, I would get swept up in things. So, you know, if, if a team was winning and it wasn't my team, I didn't care, I, was, I got swept up in it. Or if it was a bad joke, I got swept up in it. Or um, I get sweep, I swept up in dreams. So, you know, you ever have that dream where you're falling? I get so swept up in the dream. I used to get swept up in the dream when I was falling. I got so swept up that I learned to tell myself, oh, this will all end once I hit the ground. I just so swept up in these things. I had to, like, coast myself against it. I get swept up in things that have nothing to do with me, like... Um, when I, was in, uh, when I was in England, they celebrate Guy Fawkes Day. So Guy Fawkes is this guy who tried to take over Parliament and, you know, put a bomb in there. And they, they set bonfires because, you know, Britain is a very civil society. They set bonfires and they light, like, um, dummies of Guy Fawkes in the bonfires. And they throw them in there, right? And I just got so into it. I, I, has nothing to do with me, has nothing to do with my history, but it's fun, right? I mean, Cinco de Mayo. Who doesn't like Cinco de Mayo? I don't even know what it means. I can't translate it. I get swept up into things. And maybe you're here this morning and it's easy to get swept up into all the singing and the praising and the responses, but, but you wonder, like, what does it really mean? For some of us, we are swept up and we think that there's a good basis for that. It's because Jesus Christ died and rose again. Now, some of you might even accept that. But still, what's the significance? I mean, maybe you've heard the story of the guy who was sitting across from his doctor, and he believed he was dead. And his doctor said, You're not dead. And he was like, no, I'm dead. I'm really dead. I've been dead for 10 years. And the doctor says, no, you're not dead. And the doctor's trying to think, how can I convince this guy? So he takes his finger and he pricks it and starts bleeding. And the doctor says, see there? You know what that means? And the guy goes, yeah, it means strange things happen in this world. Is that what the resurrection's about? Strange things happen in this world. That we can't explain. I don't think that's why Paul gets so excited. Paul gets excited because he believes, and what he says in the passage that we just read, is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ deals with our greatest problems. What are your greatest problems? What great problems did you come in this door with? What are the problems that keep you up at night and keep you in bed in the morning? I had two conversations recently that were very striking. 
One was with a friend of mine who has found out that he has cancer. And he talked about, I asked him, you know, what's it like? What are you experiencing? He said, I wake up in the middle of the night just crying. Terrified for my wife and my kids and my life and crying out to God for mercy for another day that I could live longer, that I could see them grow older. That same week I had another conversation I had a conversation with someone who said, you know, I'm getting older now. And so sometimes I contemplate my mortality. You know, it's interesting. It's striking. What is the difference between their situations and any of ours? Like, really? Because I got bad news for you this morning. And I don't have to be a doctor to tell you. You and I were terminally ill. We're going to die. And the only difference between those two people in that conversation that I talked about and me is that they're more aware of that reality. That they contemplate it. I mean, death is not more certain for the old than the young, is it? And death is not more certain for the cancer-ridden than the cancer-free. In fact, we will all face death, and I don't know if you know this, but death has pretty good odds. Like 10 out of 10 people die who face death. You might can stay it off for a little while, but not for long. And that's why in this passage, Paul calls death a dominion in verse 9. A dominion. That it is a Lord, it is a master that reigns over our lives and reigns over the world. In fact, that's the way Paul talks about it in a chapter earlier. In Romans 5.14 he says, death reigned from Adam onwards. And then in verse 17 of that same chapter he says, death reigned through Adam. Now this isn't that hard for us to contemplate. Just think about the second law of thermodynamics. Which states that Everything is heading towards entropy. In other words, death. And it's not just things like ice cubes. It's everything. It's relationships. It's businesses. It's works of art. It's, it's cultures and societies and ourselves. And every one of these losses that we experience in life, they're really pointing to this ultimate reality of death. Uh, Sometimes when I'm feeling like I need a good cry and to get sentimental, I watch the show This Is Us. So, um, you know, this is confession time. So I was watching the show This Is Us uh, because I wanted some overly sentimentalized drama. And as I'm watching it, um, there's this, there's a scene where one of the lead, the father, Jack, he He's in this, he's always like upbeat, he's always optimistic. So I think he's from California. And as he's there, Southern California that is, as he's there, uh, he's having this conversation. 
His son is bummed out because his son just broke his leg and he's a high school football star. And his best friend is bummed out because he lost his marriage. And, uh, and they're just kind of bummed out. And he's kind of giving them a pep talk. And they're like, this is just like you. You always want to give a pep talk. And then the son says, well, that's because you've never really lost anything that you care about. And then his friend goes, well, that's not true. Remember that company that you wanted to start? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And he says, well, that's, that's past. I had to make a decision. And the son's like, you wanted to start a company? Yeah, I wanted to start a family business. It was my dream. But that's done. Decisions are decisions. And we just move on. And then later... The son says, well, is it time now to start the family business? And he's like, no. What is that? It's time moving on. It's the loss of opportunity. It is moving towards death. Which means the chance is done. And we experience a million different little deaths in our lives until the great death. And this presents a problem for us. And that is, it makes life, death makes life meaningless. Did you know that? Because the reality is, is that if everything is heading towards death, and if death has the last word, then life is meaningless. Uh, 20th century philosophers got this. So once they did away with God, and once they said, basically it's a naturalistic, materialistic universe where the last star is going to burn out, what it means is love, hate, joy, peace, things that we, uh, the relationships that we have, the works that we do, it all doesn't matter. Bertrand Russell, for instance, the 20th century philosopher, he said, since everything is destined for death, all human labor, love, and genius are destined to extinction and the vast death of the solar system. And then he notes this, and this drives us to despair. It's not just 20th century philosophers, though. It's also 21st century CEOs. So Steve Jobs, right, who was taken by cancer, when he faced cancer, he tried to, he tried to evade it many different ways. Brain power, money, eating apples. It didn't work. Finally, cancer got him. And as he sat there and looked in the face of cancer, he said this, it's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and you do all these things and it just goes away. Uh, there was a book written by a guy named Ernest Becker called The Denial of Death. It won the Pulitzer Prize. Ernest Becker is not a Christian. Uh, he's a secular psychologist. And he says that humans live with this central paradox. And here's the paradox. On the one hand... We all recognize our mortality. On the other hand, and are aware of it, on the other hand, we can't and we're unable to bear this knowledge because it makes life meaningless and we want meaningful lives. And so he says that we come up with these little illusions to, to, to trick ourselves into thinking that we are immortal. And, and what's Brilliant about the book is not actually the part that I just said. What's brilliant is then he starts talking about what he calls strategies to overcome our deep anxieties about death. Now this was written like last century, before the rise of technology that we have today. And here's what he says. You know one of the things he says, uh, one of the strategies that we use is perpetual distraction. 
You know, studies have linked use of social media and Netflix to anxiety. Why? Because we binge watch these things or we scroll to distract ourselves, but underlying there's this deep anxiety, the anxiety about death that we cannot get over. Another way that um, one of the things he says, the strategies we use, is immortality projects. So an immortality project could be like creating a, a great piece of art or having a family that has a legacy that goes on or that kind of thing. And you don't think about the fact that, well, it goes on and then goes on and then it all dies. You just kind of look at the, the near future. Um, but uh, we, we do this kind of through healthy living and healthy eating and kind of trying to convince ourselves that we're going to go on and on and on. So like a great example of this is Chris Traeger in Parks and Recreation. You know, Chris Traeger, played by Rob Rouleau, my neighbor. Um, Not really. Uh, So Chris Traeger is um, a 44-year-old, very fit, uh, very fit um, guy who always eats like kale for lunch and and other things uh, that is really, really healthy. And then in one episode, he realizes that he has tendonitis in his elbow. And it drives him to despair. Because he starts thinking, like, I'm going to die, right? And for, like, three days, he is driven to despair because he has tendonitis in his elbow. And all of a sudden, that he realizes that all his healthy living and all that is actually, it's not going to win in the end. That he is mortal. But then he goes back to his strategy to deny it through working out and whatever. We have these immortality projects But the reality is is that no matter how much healthy living we do, no matter how much money we have, no matter how um, no matter how much of a legacy we built, no matter how much cryogenic freezing we try to accomplish, the reality is is that death wins every time. We are all destined for death. Death wins every time except one time. In the middle of the first century, in Jerusalem, when on a Sunday a Jewish man rose from the dead. In that day, death was defeated. In that man and by that man. Paul says in verses 9 and 10, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Jesus rose from the dead, and guess what? Death, it doesn't get another shot. No longer to die again. No more dominion over him. And why is it that death doesn't get another shot? Well, he says in verse 10, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Which brings us to that second big problem that we have. Sin. Now, a lot of Christian doctrines are unpalatable to people. But there's never been a doctrine that is so unpalatable to the common person, and even to Christians, than the doctrine of sin. No, much, uh, no, no other doctrine has engendered such hostility than the doctrine of sin. And, and when we listen to Paul talk about people being enslaved to sin and under a dominion of sin, 
it kind of sounds like the ravings of a first century madman, you, you know? I mean, a little kid's really enslaved to sin. Am I really enslaved to sin? But before you dismiss Paul, let me just ask you a question. When you came here, did you lock your doors on your house? What about when you left your car? Did you lock your doors then? And why? And why is it that banks make us use pens? And why is it that we have checks and balances in our government? See, I would suggest to you that we do all these things because we recognize what Paul's talking about, and that is that sin is pervasive in the world. And so, though we might not like it, the reality is is that we all live as if it's true. That's why G.K. Chesterton once sardonically quipped that even though sin is the doctrine that is um, most unpalatable to people, it's also one of the only Christian doctrines that's empirically provable. I mean, just look around. The doctrine of pervasive sin is everywhere. But it's not only that we dislike this doctrine, it's also a doctrine that I would say is deeply misunderstood. Deeply misunderstood. Because most of us, when I talk about sin, we think about some kind of bad deed, a misdeed. You know, it is, it's knocking the old lady over uh, when you're crossing the street and watching her Trader Joe's grocery bag fill all over the ground and keep on going, right? It is... Uh, it is stealing from charities. It is um, lying about your taxes. Uh, there are all these things that we consider to be sin. But when the Bible talks about sin, that's not what it's talking about. In fact, if you think about that, like some kind of misdeed that you do, it doesn't make sense of Paul's language here. Because in verse 6, Paul talks about the body of sin. In verse 6, he says that we are enslaved to sin. And he doesn't say sins, plural. That's what I've been talking about. He says sin. See, the Christian doctrine of sin is basically this idea that, that we are flawed in some deep way, that we seek our interest over others, that this isn't just to happen occasionally, but naturally. And when do you put yourself in someone else's shoes first? And... Uh, that this is a nature we inhabit. As Hayes Moat says in Flannery O'Connor's novel, uh, when, um, when, this blind, uh, when this blind guy says, you know, you need to repent and confess your sins, name them. And Hayes Moat says, those are just words. If I was in sin, I was in it before I ever committed any. That's right. In the Bible, sin is this pervasive, the Bible speaks about sin as this kind of pervasive, infectious disease. Uh, Another way to think about it is it's a disordered filter, and that filter just tilts everything, so everything's just off a little bit. Sin is this slight tilt toward the cruel and the perverse, and and it's subtle. Sin is this this sense that we we are biased against flourishing, our own and others. And it affects everything that we do. That's why the Bible can even call good works filthy rags and righteous deeds excrement. It's not that Isaiah and Paul aren't saying that there aren't good works. There are. They're just 
tainted, off, askew. Think of it like this. Um, Travel with me to this amazing restaurant in upstate New York. The whole restaurant is put on, everything that you're going to be served there is by a sustainable farm that's there. You go to this sustainable farm and you're eating. Uh, and all the, the, the chef is world class. And he spends forever cooking this meal and it is exquisite. He is cooking out of his mind. It is incredible. All the techniques, everything he does, so good. Um, but there's just one problem with the meal as you're eating it. I mean, it tastes wonderful. It's a good meal. It's just one problem. Maybe two. The chef has the flu. And there was an E. coli outbreak on the farm. So all the things that you're eating are tainted. And there's an infectious disease that affects every good thing that's on your plate. That is the Bible's view of sin. It's why... It's why, have you ever noticed that like as nations, but also as human beings, when we try to do good things for like other nations, it always somehow goes bad? You ever notice that? And then we think, well, if we get involved, it'll help, but then it hurts. Oh yeah, and Christian missionaries did this as well. We get involved and it helps, but it doesn't really help. It hurts, but inactivity hurts, and it's like everything that you touch is tainted. Yeah. That's the Christian doctrine of sin. And people in oppressive regimes and stuff have gotten this. It's, it's, it's why, by the way, Paul speaks of a body of sin. When Paul speaks of a body of sin, he's talking about the interconnectedness of us all, and we're in this environment of sin. Uh, people who have experienced oppressive regimes have all gotten this. So, for instance, uh, Vaclav Havel the statesman from the Czech Republic who lived in Stalinist Russia. He said, to live in Stalinist Russia was to live in circumstances where no one was able to escape the daily necessity for small betrayals. Hear what he's saying? You can't get out of it. Or Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was uh, in the gulag uh, camps forever and wrote about those. And he said... What you find there is that when people are oppressed, how they act in response, you start realizing that there aren't white hats and black hats in the world. He said, if only it were so simple. If only there were evil people who uh, somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were only necessary to separate ourselves uh, from the rest of us, I'm sorry, separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line between the dividing line between good and evil, cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his heart? Or the Holocaust survivor, Primo Levi, who said compassion and brutality can coexist in the same individual in the same moment despite all logic. Now, how did they come to this? They came to this because they saw how people acted and they saw their own hearts and how they, they acted in oppressive situations. And, and people have like studied this. So when the, um, what was a, there was a, a kind of uh, situation in the Iraq war where some soldiers were um, torturing 
prisoners. And, and one of the questions people ask is, how are these guys, they, they went to their histories, they went, how did they, get, how did they do this? And Donald Rumsfeld said, well, it's just a few bad apples. But, you know, studies, they have run studies where they set people who have a commander over them, and they have like an electrician, uh, they, have an electric, uh, they send an electric, electric current into a person, and they say, you're going to sit there and you're going to listen to this person, give you command, and you're going to turn it up. And, um, and they could go, and they knew what like, would turn it up to torture and even death. And, um, and in the study, what they found was, while people assumed that only 1% would turn it up all the way, it was like more than two-thirds. And the point is, when we get into an environment, that's when what's in the heart is revealed. It's sin. And it's a plagued existence. And the question is, is how can we escape this sin-plagued existence? And there's only one way. Did you know that? Death. Look, verse 7. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. The only way that you can be free from this sin-plagued existence is to die. But, of course, that presents another problem. And that is this, that, that death is the end unless, unless Jesus made a way by dying and rising again. And that's what Paul says. For we know, verse 6, no, it says, um, sorry, it says, that uh, verse 10 again, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. The reason why Jesus is able to live to God in an unsin-infested universe is because he came into the sin-infested universe and made it through the other side. And because of that, we actually can enter into that. Look verse 6, he says, we know that our old self, and this is not talking about an individual person, the old human nature is what Paul means was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. Do you know what that means? What it means is this. It means that change is possible. It means that you can have a new life. It means that you can be connected to a world that is free from the sin-infested existence. And... um. The author Marilyn Robinson has these two novels. One's called Home and one's called Gilead. And they are about the same events from different angles. And the central conversation in these um, novels has to do with a conversation with a prodigal son named Jack Botton. And he's asking the question about his own soul, but he puts it like kind of theoretically. He asks his, his father's best friend, who's a minister, he says, do you think some people are, in, are intentionally and irrevocably consigned to perdition? Now, it sounds like this is a theoretical condition, uh, question, but then he puts a point on it. My question is, are there people who are simply born evil, live evil lives, and then go to hell? In other words, can you change? And he's not asking this because of a friend. He says, I've wondered whether I might not be an example of such a person. And the two ministers are sitting on the porch and they hem and haw together. And then one of the minister's wives, Lila, who hasn't been a Christian very long, 
she pipes up and she says, a person can change. Everything can change. What Jesus' resurrection means is that a person can change. And that everything can change. Because Jesus entered into our sin-infested world and society And he brought our world. He took on our humanity. He took on our flesh. And he brought it through the other side. See, in Jesus, you can change. In Jesus, your spouse can change. In Jesus, your kids can change. In Jesus, your parent can change. In Jesus, your boss can change. In Jesus, change is possible. Do you believe it? Easter means that Jesus deals with the problem of sin. And Easter also means that Jesus has dealt with the problem of death. Look in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Do you hear the certainty? We shall certainly be. For Paul, he believes that, that this is a certainty. Verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If you are united to Christ, then he will pull you through the other side. That's what it means. And you know what that means? It means your life matters. It means that the things you do matter. It means that you have significance that is enduring. It also means that there will be a day when there is no more loss. That there is a day when there is no more death. That death will be overcome. Loss will be overcome. And and that is not simply the great loss of death, but all the losses that it points to, like, like unrealized flourishing in your life. Like broken relationships. Like relationships that didn't cultivate and didn't come to their of what they could have been. There's a day in which all of that is going to be wiped out and loss is no more because Jesus has defeated death. And it means that you will last. So let me ask you, what is your greatest problem this morning? Whatever it is, It really comes down to sin and death. And you know what I think our greatest problem is? That we don't believe this good news. Because Paul says, verse 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The reason why some of us are not changing, the reason why some of us are not living as we ought and should and could, the reason why we are hopeless and helpless and feel that way is because we are failing to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Did you know that this is the first instruction that Paul has given in the whole letter? And for my money, it's the most important one. This This is the primary obedience, the obedience of faith. It is to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I think that most of our problems boil down to that. That we don't believe that he died to destroy the sinful body and he rose again to give us life and hope and peace.
And when we don't believe in it, we don't live in it. But I have better news. Whether or not you consider yourself dead to sin or alive to God in Christ Jesus, guess what? Jesus died and rose again for sinners like you and me. Jesus died and rose again, and you're believing it and you're considering it from moment to moment, it does not change the objective reality of it, that sin and death has been defeated in him. Katerina was a young girl living in Kosovo during the war. During the war, she was kidnapped and then sold into slavery. Horrible things were done. Abuse of every kind of nature. She was trapped and she was imprisoned. And there was no way out. Her family loved her dearly and one of them had a connection with the government. Because of that, they found out who was enslaving her. But but there wasn't really a way to get to her. The only way to get to her was for someone from the government to actually go undercover and sell themselves into that enslaved position. And so, a woman did. She sold herself into the condition of slavery. She was ruled and she was enslaved and she went through every atrocious thing that Katarina went through. So that, when the moment was right, she might grab Katarina and rescue her and deliver her, and bring her out. She went from a position of freedom and sold herself into slavery so that she might bring the enslaved back to freedom. That's what Jesus did for you and for me. Jesus, who was completely free, free from the sinful mode of existence, he took on sin. He put himself in the likeness of sinful flesh, He entered into our sin-infected world so that He might defeat sin and death and bring you and I to the other side. So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus because the victory has been won. Amen.